Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack Rostamundley. And I am another one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And today we uh, do not have just two co-hosts, but perhaps have three co-hosts or co Try hosts or something. I'm not much exactly like the sure Roman that. Republic of old. We are now a triumvirate. <laughs> we are we are joined by Corey Gina, who is our social media manager um, of two three years now. I don't even remember. Must be just over two. Yeah, must be just yeah. over two. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't even know how to introduce you properly. But uh, Corey is the best. She's been doing our social media for probably two years. We <laughs> may be confirmed. And um, as well as, you know, uh, we've, I would say, uh, a low-key consultant on doing things better at Close Talking. And is also a freelance consultant and has a PhD in English from the University of London. So welcome, Corey. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited that this is happening, I think. It's kind of great to be on this side of things as opposed to the other side. So get to see what this process is like. So yeah, (laughs) it's great to be here. Yeah, we have a really good, I mean, I think just a remarkable poem today. Um, The poem is uh, Blues on Yellow by Marilyn Chin. Um, and Jack, you had selected it, um, a while ago when we were picking poems, probably in the winter. And then, um, yeah, there was the, the horrific, um, shooting in Atlanta, um, that, uh, resulted in, yeah, or the, the white shooter who, uh, went to three Asian spas and killed, eight people, seven of whom were women and six were Asian women. I understand that Corey, you kind of wrote something and you had been writing pieces for the blog for Cardboard Box Productions, which kind of does the close talking and also the other related podcasts. Um, and that went up last week and it was a really um, just, I don't know, marvelous, devastating piece. Um, and so we thought that this poem was resonant and um, it would be cool if, if you would uh, talk about the poem and, and maybe also the piece uh, today. Yeah, I'm happy to. That was, um, was really, thanks for saying all of those things about the piece. I think I said to Jack when I sent it to him initially, it was, it was easy to write and it was very difficult to write at the same time, if that makes sense. It also felt very cathartic. There were a lot of feelings I think that I had between Wednesday and Thursday before it went up. So um, 
and I agree this the poem is just it's so of the moment you know what's happening right now and um and I think actually you know I, I hadn't read it before I wrote the piece my piece um but there's a lot of connections there so I'm eager to talk about them. absolutely yeah I can't wait to hear you uh draw all of those out very quickly before we actually get into the poem a little bit about the author Marilyn Chin she was born in Hong Kong and grew up mostly in Portland um, she is one of the chancellors of the Academy of American Poets and has taught basically all over the world like an incredible incredible career she is I believe the co-director of the MFA at San Diego State University she's been a Stegner fellow and a Fulbright she's got two NEAs yeah just an incredibly uh, accoladed career. Yeah, I think actually last year she won the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, which is there's like two Ruth Lillys and one is mo the probably the more well-known one, but it's that's for the emerging poets, but this one I think was for poets who are much more established in their careers and it's a it's a it's a big one. Yeah, in 2018 she she came out with a big sort of new and selected poems, um, a portrait of the South as nation. This poem comes from her book, Rhapsody in Plain Yellow, which came out in 2002. Yeah, and as we as we have done, uh, when we've had new people on the show, um, we usually have them read the poem. So Corey, if, if you're so inclined, uh, we'd, we'd love if you could uh, read this one. Okay, I'd be happy to. This is Blues on Yellow by Marilyn Chin. The canary died in the gold mine. Her dreams got lost in the sieve. The canary died in the gold mine. Her dreams got lost in the sieve. Her husband the crow killed under the railroad. The spokes hath shorn his wings. Something's cooking in Chin's kitchen. 10,000 yellow-bellied sapsuckers baked in a pie. Something's cooking in Chin's kitchen. 10,000 yellow-bellied sapsuckers baked in a pie. Something's cooking in Chin's, Chin's kitchen. Die, die, yellow bird, die, die. Something's cooking in Chin's kitchen. Die, die, yellow bird, die, die. Oh, crack an egg on the griddle. Yellow will ooze into white. Oh, crack an egg on the griddle. Yellow will ooze into white. Run, run, sweet little Puritan. Yellow will ooze into white. If you cut my yellow wrists, I'll teach my yellow toes to write. If you cut my yellow wrists, I'll teach my yellow toes to write. If you cut my yellow fists, I'll teach my yellow toes to fight. Do not be afraid to perish, my mother. Buddha's compassion is nigh. Do not be afraid to perish, my mother. Our boat will sail tonight. Your babies will reach the promised land. The stars will be their guide. I am so mellow yellow, mellow yellow. Buddha sings in my veins. I am so mellow yellow, mellow yellow. Buddha sings in my veins. Oh, take me to the land of the unreborn. There's no life on earth without pain. Wow. Hmm. It's interesting because like, I this happens with moderate frequency probably but like my process for preparing for these is always to read the poem aloud at some point I'll read it on the page a bunch and like make notes and stuff but at some point I sort of read it aloud to myself but it is a completely different experience to hear someone else read it and I think probably more so with this poem than a lot of others for a lot of reasons we'll get into but I think some of it is just the blues form of it hearing that not in your own voice really the the repetition feels very different and i think the kind of cadence and rhythm which masterfully brought out in that reading i think Corey, is really incredible um it just yeah it it feels very different even from reading it aloud to yourself yeah i really agree with that and i yeah because i think especially when you're reading it on the page like my sort of um I don't know. Impatient school brain is like, okay, it's the same line. I'm reading it silently. I'll just making a note. It's repeated. Um, but you can't you can't do that when 
um, you're just listening to it and then it kind of has to sort of echo in that insistent way. It's our, we had gone for years without a blues poem and then we've done two in quick succession. Um, the, the one we did a couple episodes ago was in Youngsville by Tyree Day. Um, this one is much more traditional, like you could even put it to a blues like song and it, um, Tyree Day's was, was more sort of, um, there was less sort of full line repetition, I think. Um, yeah, this is like if you took as an archetypal blues song structure, this is it. It's two lines that are the same, and then a third line that not always in here, but often in this poem too, rhymes with the first two. And that's like the most famous blues songs that you can think of probably follow that structure, like Sweet Home Chicago, which I know we referenced mm. in the in the previous episode. And actually I found that she, there's a, we'll link to this, but there's um, on the, the library of Congress, she discusses, uh, Marilyn Chin discusses the, the actual blues song, Backwater Blues by Bessie Smith. Uh, and she reads it and talks about it. And then she actually includes this poem as a kind of sort of example. Um, and I, I don't know, I'll just read what she says, because I think it's it's a helpful way for me to, to frame kind of approaching this poem. But um, after talking about Bessie Smith's Backwater Blues, Marilyn Chin says, I love writing blues poems. As a poet who writes in English, I know that every time I write a sonnet, I pay homage to the high European tradition and to master poets like Shakespeare, Dunn, Keats, Petrarch. I see myself as an activist Chinese American poet, and I want to show the multiple sides of my literary inheritance. I make it a point to learn the African American poetic tradition. The blues poems was more here on American soil. And so I study the blues poems closely and write blues poems to pay homage to all those African American blues masters. Of course, I learned so much from the Bessie Smith's blues poems. I have her strong voice in my ear at all times. That's very cool. Yeah. I can imagine our previous guest, Dr. Hollis Robbins, rising <laughs> up in consternation, having traced the African-American sonnet tradition in her book. But I think <laughs> even she would agree with that uh, as a general sort of distinction between something like a sonnet and, a, and the blues, and just in terms of like their traditions of origin. Definitely. What I find interesting about that, and what I find interesting in this poem, is that it does feel like what she is creating throughout the poem is a dialogue between the histories of Chinese Americans and black Americans. Um, and there's many different points at which she does that in different ways. But I think you get an indication right from the first, uh, the first stanza where she's talking about, you know, on a very basic level. And this is like kind of, perhaps reductive symbolism, but the canary and the crow as a yellow bird and a black bird, which recur throughout the poem. Uh, and also the references to gold mines, mining and like resource extraction, incredibly dangerous jobs that were often given to in the West of the United States, though not exclusively in the West to uh, Chinese laborers or on the railroads where you know, the history in the in the West is well known, but also particularly in the South after the Civil War, Chinese laborers were brought to the South to replace and work as incredibly cheap laborers in the place of newly freed black workers. So right from the beginning, you're getting these kind of allusions to twin histories going on that then segues into the really interesting line, something's cooking in Chin's kitchen, 10,000 yellow-bellied sapsuckers baked in a pie, because there you have, and at the end it says, you know, die, die, yellow bird, die. It's this really intense um, stanza, but it's also, I think, reminiscent of 4 and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. So even without explicitly referencing a crow or a blackbird like the first line does, you're still in this world where that, uh, you know, twinning and 
bouncing back and forth between those two ideas is still being kind of brought home for you right at the beginning of the poem as this conceptual overlay to bring into the rest of it, which I think even the title Blues on Yellow puts you into that kind of realm and particularly how she references her own way of thinking about working in the blues tradition. It sounds like that's very much kind of on her mind as she's doing this as well. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in that, I mean, that I noodled over that second stanza a long time because it's, I mean, it's really violent. <clears throat> you know, I, the first, in fact, the first two really, or the first three, even the, the word crack and egg, you know, all of those, those actions are on some level pretty violent. Um, but I thought it was interesting how she invoked her own last name, you know, in the second stanza. I mean, she really, <laughs> she just pulls herself right into the poem. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to know what you both think about that second stanza, because that, I think it threw me for a loop the first time I read it. I think the part that I puzzled over the longest was the fact that it's her kitchen. And what does it mean that this violence is happening in her, like, not just her home, but like the kitchen is the part of your house where you know, like you cook for other people and it's this sense of hearth and warmth usually. And to bring that violence, not just into that space that's usually coded as being, you know, more about caring and togetherness. Um, and so often in poetry, food is used and I guess just culture generally, food is like a connective thing. And here it is very much the the source of the violent death. And not just that, but the fact that it's her kitchen. You know, it's Chin's kitchen where this is happening. I didn't really quite know where to go with that. I spent a lot of time with it and I wasn't quite sure what that move was about. I don't know if either of you have thoughts or ideas about about where that might be headed. Yeah, I I I share um, <laughs> both of your kind of questions about it. I mean, it's it's clear that like, um, you know, yeah, the the, the speaker is is implicating herself uh, to some extent in, in the violence that's described in the poem. Um, but it, but it's sort of unclear to me at this point, like what the relationship is, you know, um, between the, the speaker and the, the, you know, the acts of violence and the objects of, you know, who's the, the birds in the pie. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah. So that's kind of like, I don't know. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, Cause there's certainly, an, a, you know, like through the, the whole poem, violence and dying is kind of the, almost comes up in, in every stanza. Um, I mean, the, the canary dies and the crow dies in the first stanza. Um, the yellow bird dies in the second stanza. The egg is basically dying. And also symbolically, the 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 repeated line like yellow will ooze into white, there is a kind of like kind of oozing into white feels like a kind of erasure or death or something happening there. Um and then, you know, like if you cut my yellow wrists, I'll teach my yellow toes to write. That whole stanza is, you know, um, is is very viscerally violent. And then, and then it, there's a kind of turn where toward the speaker's mother uh, in the in the next stanza, "Do not be afraid to perish, my mother." Um, Buddha's compassion is nigh. Do not be afraid to perish, my mother. And then, you know the last line of the last stanza, take me to the land of the unreborn. There's no life on earth without pain. This is sort of an aside, but even though it's it's kind of like a loud, I, I feel like I may have earned a, uh, a reputation on this podcast for not liking loud forms, but this one is a loud form and I think it does it very well. And, and partly I think it's because there's, so much complexity and multiple meanings bound up in all of the images and symbols and things like that. Yeah, the, the question of violence and death seems to be, I don't know, a vexed one that's sort of changing 
and that like canary in the gold mine is also a riff on like the canary in the coal mine and the canary mm -hmm. was the the bird the early warning signal because I, I was like reading about it and it <laughs> it's actually quite a dark <laughs> uh history where it it just really needs to breathe and if it uh takes in too much carbon monoxide then it dies <laughs> and so then the miners knew to get out of the mine um i don't know there's very much a sense in that in that stanza that like you know like as you were saying jack the the kind of the demands of labor and sort of american exploitative capitalism or whatever are kind of killing these birds um and these sort of peoples by extension um and yeah and then like if you cut the if you cut stanza is then turning again to the you know the you i'm not sure exactly who the you is but there's a kind of like oppositional where the speaker has agency um that doesn't really answer the central question that you brought up, Corey, about the second stanza, but um, I don't know. I, I guess I was just thinking about that it that it's uh, it does seem connected in some ways to a lot of the other stanzas, so maybe that'll get us there yeah. somehow. I mean, I had a small conclusion after thinking about it for quite a while, and it seems to me just kind of standing back from the poem you know, it's it's largely about um, cultural annihilation, self-annihilation in, in some respects. And and to me, I think that's where I, I landed with the, the die, die, yellow bird, die, die, that, <clears throat> you know, there's, she's essentially maybe not 10,000 or, or maybe it is 10,000, but in some sense, it, that's the self-annihilation that's happening, you know, baking yourself into the pie so that you will die. And then you're right, something does happen where it's that fourth stanza feels very, um, it really shakes things up because it's, you know, very oppositional, I think, to the rest of the tone of the poem. Um, and then I wondered as well, as we're kind of, you know, reading down, it's obviously about America. We've got the gold mines, we've got the blues on yellow, we have husband the crow killed under the railroad, and then land of the unreborn, and we have the Puritan, which I thought was also really interesting. Um, and I wondered if America is that unfertilized egg, you know, oh crack an egg on the griddle. And I think you're absolutely right that the yellow oozing into white is that I think that's where the assimilation, the disappearing kind of comes into play. So again, that cultural annihilation that feeds throughout the entire poem. What I like particularly in that uh, third stanza, you know, yellow will ooze into white. I particularly enjoy run, run, sweet little Puritan because it does then kind of turn this statement into like a little bit of a taunt. And that's the first hint that we get in the poem or the first hint I get reading through the poem of what then becomes so explicit in the next stanza, which is this very powerful kind of resilience. Um, and yeah, I think that kind of taunting transition was very uh, appealing to me because it's also one of the only moments of sort of levity in the poem. Like you actually get kind of a wry, like yeah, run, you better run, uh, Puritan. You don't get it. Um, or at least I get some of that flavor in it. And I like that that comes about halfway through because I think, for me at least without that, I, the, the weight of the poem would still be there, but it wouldn't be leavened with anything. You wouldn't have any other, you know, the same kind of different tones being struck. And I think that having that slight, you know, balance to the tone gives the whole poem a, just a different feel because you then do get into these even more intense later stanzas but they feel recontextualized a little bit because the speaker has shown that they have you know this sort of wry edge and so 
lines that might just seem like they're kind of uh, pronouncements or intonations, which would work very well. That whole last stanza hits very differently to me because the speaker has shown me all of this different variety leading up to it. It can then bring on all these other dimensions. And also, as you mentioned, the the phrase land of the unreborn is just a big and juicy one. I mean, you just made me think of something, actually. The sing a song of sixpence Mm -hmm. baked in a pie. It's because I think originally that was like an entertaining dessert, right? Wasn't it meant to be? Because I think the birds really did come out of the pie. If if I'm correct on my history, <clears throat> my cooking history, my culinary history. Um, so yes, self annihilation, but also a rebirth in a strange way. In the same way that we have the egg and land of the unreborn. Anyway, interesting. You just made me think of it there. There's an interesting connection there. That's true. Yeah, I mean, the the whole idea of self-annihilation is an interesting one. And I'm curious to hear more about how you see that threaded throughout the poem, because obviously it's in this second stanza, like kind of most clearly. But yeah, where else do you see that coming up? And, and what do you think that's kind of what work is that doing in the poem? Well, I think definitely the crack and egg on the griddle, yellow will ooze into white. I mean, you've got maybe two things happening there. You know, I think the the yellow, the yolk of an egg is typically seen as the soul, right? That's kind of like the middle of the egg. And so when the yellow oozes into the white, you're just kind of losing that part of yourself. Um, I also saw it as the yellow taint, which um, <laughs> I did mention in the piece that I wrote, you know, being called yellow in the past. And there's definitely, you know, that, I feel like that stereotype or that taunt goes around where people are like, oh, you're kind of tainted. You're hanging out with all these yellow people. So I think that that's, um, that self-annihilation is also there. And I wonder if in a way it's also in the very last stanza, or maybe the last two, because they are, you know, presumably taking a boat. They're hoping to reach a better place. Um, But in that very action, you know, the moment you perhaps take that step, you are sailing away from or making a choice somehow, whether you want to or not, you probably don't have a choice if you've gotten on that boat. Um, So there's going to be some some loss because your story is going to be in that new land, the land of the unreborn. Yeah. I like that a lot. It makes that third stanza. It's interesting. Yeah. With the Puritan, like this is maybe going to seem scattered, but um, it reminds me of, I feel like um, the poet and writer, Kathy Park Hong has talked about this sometimes that, that in America, Asian American, communities are figured as being like they have like a proximity to whiteness or there's like and in general like white supremacy has you know the you know like that was a spoon um (laughs) other you know like uh other immigrants like you know um irish and italian uh, had eventually sort of became white at a certain time in history. Um, and and this sort of sort of thinking about the way you were talking about the taunt, like and and then the annihilation, the oozing into white feels somewhat like a symbol for that sort of like assimilation pressure in some way. Um, but then at the same time the then the run run sweet little Puritan is is like the like kind of what you were also what you were saying of like the white puritan will uh, get the the yellow yolk like um oozed <laughs> onto them or whatever so uh poor puritan better run far away or whatever um and so it's yeah which is just kind of like 
yeah, I don't know. I, I, I had picked up, I had had the first reading sort of by myself, but now sort of thinking about what you both are saying and then reading again, it, it, it clearly is, is doing both of those things too. Well, that's part of what I found so interesting about the inclusion of the Puritan there is because like my original reading as I'm first going through it is crack an egg on the griddle. So like, okay, this is an egg under pressure or like under stress and under those conditions, yellow will ooze into white self-annihilation or even in some instances like self-protection trying to assimilate into the dominant culture is a is something that has happened for a very long time in many different communities and that makes sense but then with the injection of the run run sweet little puritan yellow will ooze into white it sort of reframes the yellow oozing into white as like almost positive and in not in the sense of assimilation but in the sense of you know a a more diverse nation that can hold both of those things you know unlike in the other rhyming stanzas that part of it doesn't change that remains the same in all three lines so you get it repeated twice then the puritan comes and then it's kind of to me at least it's been reframed a little bit and it's repeated without any change the idea by bringing in this sort of uh i think in the world of the poem we're pretty clear to understand uh derisively referred to puritanical group who's very interested in keeping the the yoke and the white separate um by bringing that in it it reframes that for me a little bit which then leads into the next stanza really well which is just the kind of you know if you cut my wrists like my toes are gonna write um and like if you cut my fists my toes are going to fight, um, which is like, you can do whatever you want to, but like, <laughs> I'm going to be here, uh, you know, writing and fighting basically, despite, um, you know, whatever violence you throw at me in some sense. Um, and then, yeah. And then it's another move. I don't know. It's, it's to the, do not be afraid to perish. I mean, there's also, yeah, there's the, the, there's so much in one interview, uh, Marilyn Chin had talked about how much she likes sort of cross pollination and like kind of, you know, um, you know, this, this poem with the blues and all that stuff, but there's also like so much, references and allusions in this poem um that we've we've already talked about a bunch of but like you know the canary in the gold mine and the birds in the pie and the um but then there's also the like the different kind of tonal registers that are happening which are which is kind of interesting where on the one hand you have like i am so mellow yellow um and then you have the like, oh, crack an egg on the griddle with the like, oh, as the kind of poetic oh without the H. Um, and then like, do not be afraid to perish and like using perish and Buddha's compassion is nigh. And like in the first stanza, the spokes hath shorn his wings is saying hath is, is, is good. I don't know. So th there's just a lot of textures in this poem. What I'm curious about, so this is something that you kind of touched on, Connor, and also Corey in talking about that uh, third stanza, which I feel like we spent a lot of time on, but it brings up like a larger idea that I'm curious about. And it is something that I think, Corey, you dove, you dove into quite a bit in, in the uh, blog post that you wrote. But like, I know just from being in white spaces around the time that the book that had this poem in it came out it was shortly after 9 11 so there was a lot of pretty accepted horrible stuff said about muslims that i heard and probably pretty closely behind that in terms of like socially accepted very kind of straightforwardly racist stuff that people would say I mean, not particularly accepted like it would get called out but people would still feel empowered to say it in a way that they absolutely wouldn't about another minority group was stuff about you know asian people basically i heard more of that 
from like peers or just kind of being around a lot of white spaces than almost any other group. And you kind of talked in your post, and I think some of the uh, what we were saying about the proximity, perhaps that the um, that the kind of egg points to uh, in there is like the possibility of invisibility and like the, in, the invisibility of threat or danger, but also this kind of like false sense of acceptability of more kind of a heinous speech acts and actual acts. And I'm sort of curious for your thoughts on, on that concept and idea. Yeah. And it, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all that that would be kind of what you would hear after slurs against Muslims. Um, <clears throat> I think part of what I was saying is, you know, especially, and I, I guess I felt this keenly after George Floyd was murdered, you know, wanting to stand absolutely in solidarity with um, black brothers and sisters and what happened was so horrible. You don't, you don't ever wanna put yourself in that position where you know, I'm not black, so I haven't experienced exactly what black people have. Um, and yet at the same time, we've, you know, as an Asian American, I've had my own share of racism and discrimination. And it's not at all meant to be a jockeying for position. I don't think anybody wants that or, or, or hopefully doesn't see it that way. Um, but I think that's what I was trying to say with Asians, you know, being kind of just disappeared. Um, and there is, I think we, you know, I think the US has really bought into that model minority stereotype that, oh, Asians are fine. You know, they, they have great jobs. They're highly educated. Um, they really are so close to being white that surely they don't face any discrimination or racism or violence. And that just isn't the case. I think that was part of the reason why I wanted to say something because it's, you know, it still hasn't been called a hate crime, the shooting spree that's happened. It probably won't be. Um, and yeah, I just, I thought, okay, it's time to, it's time to speak up. And I, I don't know if I can't speak for all Asians, but I find it really hard to talk about the racism and discrimination that I faced because maybe partly because I don't want it to take space from another group. This this poem really calls that out in a big way because that that's definitely been my experience, and and I think that's what Asian Americans as a group are saying right now. Yeah, absolutely. Just reading through this poem, I think something that it makes a big point of in you know the title "Blues on Yellow" and the number of times that yellow comes up within the poem is just confronting you with that word that if you live in the United States, you know the way that that word has been weaponized over time. And I think that by repeating it so many times, you're kind of forced into, as the reader of the poem, you're forced to hear it over and over again, the way that somebody who is having it used against them would have to hear it over and over and over again. I feel like that experience, you know, it's like, obviously not the same experience, but I feel like that's what the poem is pointing you towards is like, look at what happens when you can't escape this word think about the violence that surrounds it uh, by surrounding it with all of this violent imagery. I, I definitely get that sense from the poem. And I feel like there are also hints within it in the way that it points to history and in the way that it points to violence about like, think about how long this has been deemed okay, or like this has gone uninterrogated and unexamined. Something that just like in the totality of this poem that sense, I feel like, is one that it brings. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, one of the things that I thought of reading this and reading a lot of the the articles and the other pieces of writing that were being put out shortly after the shooting spree, um, R.O. Kwan, she wrote a piece for Vanity Fair. And, you know, you mentioned the word yellow. Obviously, it's in the title. And I think one of the complexities that Kathy Park Hong and so many others have brought out is that, you know, to be Asian is to be also lumped into a group that's got so many different 
um, nationalities or cultures, just, you know, we're a huge, huge group. And I may not necessarily have something in common with somebody, say, from Thailand or from Vietnam. <clears throat> and, and yet we're all considered Asians. Um, but she had a line in, the, in her article that said, you know, she's, she knows that she and her friends have sometimes been confused for one another. And she knows they're not really friends until that's kind of happened. And that just rang so true. I just thought, yeah, that's kind of how it goes. Um, and I think the yellow in the poem, you know, certainly points to that a little bit. Yeah, the combination of intense repetition, and it's just a word that does not, it forces you to confront the ways that that word cannot describe one thing because it is used to describe a bunch of different stuff in the poem it describes different species of birds it's not even the same birds and then it also describes the yellow of an egg yolk and then you know the speaker brings it back to herself but like even within the poem yellow doesn't mean just one thing the horrible weird thing of america is like it's it's the kind of consolidation under oppression sort of thing that happens with with the lumping of all Asian communities and peoples into one thing where uh, it's it, it acquires its particular power and but also like potential for solidarity, not in what <laughs> people necessarily actually have in common with one another, but like what America has sort of decided you have all like people have in common. I No, I know what you're saying, though. It's been so, I mean, can I say it this way? I've been so proud of the Asian American community and seeing how everyone has reached out to all the Black organizations and Black leaders. And that's just been amazing. And I, you know, and the even this poem, like it's it's there, that connection is like there. And it, which tells me it's actually been going on longer than even I realize. We all need each other, you know, in that way. And, and it's true. We're, we're just going to be stronger together. So yeah, that, that has been so gratifying to see over the last week or so. It does, it does really seem like for so long, at least in the sort of quote unquote mainstream discourse, the divisions and the separations that, existed were talked about like they were somehow inherent or natural or something um and i think it does seem like that sort of lie is is being exposed and there's a lot more intentional kind of recognizing where you can people can sort of work to bridge and build those communities that sounds hopeful i'm glad that you see it that way it's <laughs> I, I think, I mean, America is a conundrum, really, isn't it? It's democracy and, you know, what our, our tenets of freedom that we have here are just amazing. And yet, you know, when you, <clears throat> when these things happen, George Floyd and the shootings of last week, it's just can be very depressing at the same time, you know. And yet, I think, despite all of that, um, and hopefully, you know, it came through in the piece. I'm still very proud to be an American. I mean, I can't imagine being anywhere else. And I've lived a lot of other places, you know, but this is still home. So, you know, I wouldn't give it up. So I, I think that's where, you know, I love that. If you cut my yellow fists, I'll teach my yellow toes to fight. Yeah. That line is really great. It's good. And I will say, um, my hope is more of a, I'm giving it a go. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I'm, um, the activist and organizer, uh, Miriam Kaba says, hope is a discipline, something you gotta practice every day. So I'm trying to <laughs> flex that muscle a little bit <laughs> should we read the poem again all right let's read it again <laughs> all right 
Okay, this is Blues on Yellow by Marilyn Chin. The canary died in the gold mine. Her dreams got lost in the sieve. The canary died in the gold mine. Her dreams got lost in the sieve. Her husband, the crow, killed under the railroad. The spokes hath shorn his wings. Something's cooking in Chin's kitchen. 10,000 yellow-bellied sapsuckers baked in a pie. Something's cooking in Chin's kitchen. 10,000 yellow-bellied sapsuckers baked in a pie. Something's cooking in Chin's kitchen. Die, die, yellow bird, die, die. Oh, crack an egg on the griddle. Yellow will ooze into white. Oh, crack an egg on the griddle. Yellow will ooze into white. Run, run, sweet little Puritan. Yellow will ooze into white. If you cut my yellow wrists, I'll teach my yellow toes to write. If you cut my yellow wrists, I'll teach my yellow toes to write. If you cut my yellow fists, I'll teach my yellow toes to fight. Do not be afraid to perish, my mother. Buddha's compassion is nigh. Do not be afraid to perish, my mother. Our boat will sail tonight. Your babies will reach the promised land. The stars will be their guide. I am so mellow yellow, mellow yellow. Buddha sings in my veins. I am so mellow yellow, mellow yellow. Buddha sings in my veins. Oh, take me to the land of the unreborn. There's no life on earth without pain. can take this in whichever order you prefer but what have you been what have you been interacting with what pieces of culture have been lighting your creative fires of late um <laughs> oh i actually have something i've been listening to music by this jazz uh musician benny mopin um that i discovered i was listening to the Miles Davis album, Bitches Brew. And there, I was doing the dishes, you know, in my own world. And then I hear a bass clarinet. And this song is like, it's like a, you know, these 20 minute jazz fusion rock vamps, very wild and out trumpets with guitar and keyboard. And then there's a bass clarinet just hanging out there. And I, I'd listened to the song before, but I, you know, anyway, this guy does it all. He's a, he's a flautist. He's a flutist. Is it a flout or a flute? I don't know. Incredible. Um, he's still around. Uh, he is 80 years old. And so, yeah, I just have been like listening to things that he's been on, things that he's led um and it's it's been good um there's a lot of great stuff with him and then this like vibraphone player i mean it's real like it's cool um is it is it vibes and bass clarinet well it's not just those things i mean it's not like a duet you know but okay well um fine. i got excited for nothing then i mean it's main. it's you know it's main. yeah you know, there's drums and stuff you know it's like a it's a group you know okay maybe that maybe i just rocking. haven't found it if there are some <laughs> no, vibes and bass clarinet duets out there let me know uh, i think that would be very cool i am also very interested in this actual group that you're describing <laughs> yeah incredibly good and has been around for a while and there's like a million hours of music that he's done so i've just been exploring so right, i highly Benny. recommend sounds amazing that does sound amazing. How about you, Corey? What have what have you been consuming lately? So I very recently, it's probably like ten days ago, finished. They called us enemy by George Takei, and I'm totally late to the game because I believe this was published in 2018. I could probably tell you right now, 2019. So I guess I'm not that late to the game, but kind of. Um, but it's a graphic novel. 
But basically, George tells his story and it gets illustrated into this graphic novel. Um, and it's about his time growing up uh, in the internment camps with his family and his memories of that. And it's very moving. I mean, I, I highly recommend it to everybody. Everybody would find this book amazing. In a lot of ways, I he probably, I, I hope he would agree with me when I say this. His dad is the real hero of the book. And it's just an amazing story. And, and it happened, like really happened to him. I love George Takei. I'm a huge fan of his. So I also um, love Star Trek. <laughs> so I'll admit that <laughs> to everyone. Um, I'm a Trekkie. So... <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I recommend the book. It's a, it's a really fast read. It's beautifully illustrated. Um, and if you, you know, if you don't know much about the internment camps, it lays out the history very clearly, very well. So it was ed educational as well as a beautiful story. What, what have you been, uh, what have you been consuming? What have you been taking in these days? Well, I'll tell you a lot of crackers and that <laughs> is exactly what I want to talk about right now. Um, oh, wow. No, well, so here's the thing, right? It's super easy to make crackers. You can make your own crackers, and it's actually really fun. And if you don't want to go to a lot of different places to source great cracker recipes, King Arthur Flour. They got a great website with tons of different baked good recipes and some pretty stupendous crackers. So my hot tip, my big recommendation is <laughs> learn about making your own crackers and go nuts because they're great. <laughs> They're delicious. They're fresh out of the oven. You feel good about it. You know every single ingredient that went into them. No preservatives. Just nice. Really healthy for you as much as any cracker can be. And like put some cheese on it or some vegan cheese spread. If that's more your, you know, vegan jam, then then go that way. It's great. <laughs> Make some crackers. Make vegan crackers. It's wicked easy. <laughs> A lot of crackers are vegan. That's a what lot of crackers you. are vegan. <laughs> I will confess that my favorite crackers are uh, not vegan. You put half a stick of butter in them. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Roster Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.